0: This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I was joined by Vinny Tortorich. You may recall we interviewed him on episode 133, and today he returns to talk about his new documentary called Beyond Impossible. And I felt a special kinship with Vinny. Not only do we share an Italian heritage, but I am one of the very first people outside his inner circle to be able to take a look at the documentary. I was really impressed by it. It really focuses in on the plant-based versus animal protein, dives deep into the methodologies, the novelty, talking about the net impact of... Methane and cows, marginal land, what that represents. We talked a great bit about a lot of the non meat products that are out there, you know, beyond meat, as well as Impossible Burger. We also spoke on the way that our health and wellness has changed since the bastardization of fats and the impact on our health, especially since the 1980s and the degree of metabolic inflexibility we're seeing currently. We did touch on The Eat Lancet planetary health diet, what that represents, what this very low animal-based protein diet can do for metabolic inflexibility, i.e. make it worse. We spoke about some of the plant-based vegan scientists that are out there and how they are impacting not only public policy, but are invested heavily on by a lot of big ag and companies like Google and Bill Gates. And then lastly, we tied up some very common misnomers about health and wellness and how that can impact us moving forward as not only as a country, but as individuals and why it's so, so important to not embrace cognitive dissonance. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Yeah, Vinny, so good to have you back again. Like I said, this must be our holiday treat you know every year we kind of connect around the holidays and talk about what's new and going on in our lives
1: yeah you know to answer your question the holidays seems to be our thing and here's the deal that the, I don't think we should wait for holiday time unless you want to hit every holiday throughout the year because I, I'd love to have you on my show more often and I'm going to say this in, right in the middle of your show I'm afraid that you think that you have to have a book or something coming out to come on the show and that's just not the truth I have people over and over. I have the Nina tie shows and the Gary. Well, Gary Taubes, he'll wait until he has a book, you know, to come out. <laughs> and then he'll, But Nina will just come on just because, you know, and you know, on and on and on. Uh, Tim Nokes is the same way. I can call Tim Nokes and he'll come on. So please feel free whenever you want to come on when you have some any kind of knowledge you want to just throw at us uh, you're welcome back. We don't have to do these holiday things, especially <laughs> on my show.
0: Yeah. No, thank you. And likewise, I think connecting good people and like-minded individuals is really important, especially as we navigate such interesting times. So I know that you've got a new documentary that's coming out and I'd love to unpack that. I had the opportunity to review the documentary and it's so incredibly timely on so many levels. And if I were to tell you all the coincidental conversations that I've had recently about these topics in particular... That's why there are no coincidences. There every reason in the world for why we are converging on this conversation right before Thanksgiving.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You, I started thinking about this. I was doing some exercise right before this podcast. And I said, you know, outside of my little team, Cynthia, you're the first person to see the documentary outside of, you know, my editor, Nick and uh, Serena, of course, who did a lot of VO for it. And. Watched it along the way as I was making it and it always feels weird. You know, I sent it to you last night, I sent it to my buddy, uh, Dr. Drew Penske and, you know, Corolla because I'm going to do all those podcasts too. And they want to see it before I go on. But I'm not doing those shows for a couple of weeks. So I'm pretty sure I'm going to go with I'm positive that you're the first person to see it outside of my small group. Uh, And you know, on and on and on. So and that's, in, you know, my attorney and all those people that's in the group, they have to see it because they have to know what they're going to be up against when we get sued and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Notice I didn't say if we get sued, that's when we get sued. But you know, it's hard to, you can't sue someone who's telling the truth that, you know, we can back up every sentence in that documentary. And I'm saying all of that ahead of you even telling me whether you liked it or
0: not. No, no, no. <laughs> but if I, I look at you as a truth teller, whether people want to hear that information or not, yeah. you are talking about topics that we are struggling as a society to navigate. And, you know, if you believe a lot of the lay press and the media, you know, when they're extrapolating from what I feel to be poor quality data and poor quality research and telling people meat is bad and plants are good and You know, kind of dividing things right down the line without really understanding all the semantics, all the things that go on. And that's what's, I think, incredibly tragic because irrespective of what side of the fence you fall on, whether you eat meat or you don't eat meat, we have to respectfully listen to one another. Like, I think you and I are probably part of a time when there was vigorous debate. I was a poli sci major the first time around in college, and we had vigorous debate. But we would then leave class and go have a beer together or go out to dinner or go on and do something else. But now things are so polarized and there's such a degree of reductionism. I mean, everything kind of gets boilerplated down to, you know, it's us or them, it's good or bad. And yet people really need to take the, the time to educate themselves and understand that it's more than what you're seeing in the media. It's more than what your best friend is, re- you know, talking to you in your ear or, more than just the opinion of a family member. It's so much larger than that. And that's why I think, you know, this documentary is important. So let's start with the title.
1: Beyond Impossible. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> which, which, if you know anything about a lot of these man-made plant-based meat options, it kind of marries to the more popular companies' names. And I've been kind of making fun, to be completely transparent, if anyone knows me on social media, I've been making fun of some of these companies because there's in an effort to find plant-based protein that mimics animal-based protein, they've created something that is not a particularly clean source of protein and is full of inflammatory foods like seed oils and, you know, soy protein isolates and other things that are largely undesirable, but I'm curious, what got you interested in doing this documentary? For anyone that's listening, Vinny has done two great documentaries before this, Fat and Fat 2, that I thoroughly enjoyed watching and do recommend to my patients. But what what made this documentary right now the one that you wanted to film and record?
1: I can answer that by going back to what you were saying before about when you would have, you know, you can socialize with people from the quote unquote other side and I don't think people realize this you know one of the biggest vegan guys out there a guy named rich roll is a close friend of mine as a matter of fact when he wrote his book about being a vegan athlete he credits me for teaching him how to ride a bike correctly how to go long right and before rich ever had a podcast he came on my podcast i think twice in the early days and talked about veganism i have nothing against veganism The only problem I have is when people lie about the results. Mm -hmm. So an actual vegan is not the problem. The problem is when you have these multinational companies dropping billions and billions of dollars into this whole thing and telling you, this is the way to eat. You know, we're going to tell the whole world, you know, we're going to lullaby the world to sleep and tell everyone this is the correct way to eat. And, you know, going back to Rich Roll, once he started his podcast, since I was a bigger name, the name of the game back then, 10 years ago was, if there was a bigger name in the podcast world, you got that guy on your show because that would bring people to your show. So I went on Rich's show and we had this nice social discourse You know, it was great and we had a great time because we're friends in real life. And then he started hearing from vegans and they were like, you didn't beat that guy up enough. You need it, why were you such a pussy and why didn't you get on that guy and the whole thing? And Rich actually asked me to come back on the show a second time so that he can ask me tougher questions, so that he could beat me up a little bit. And I obliged. I went on. I was like, yeah, I, I don't care. Ask me tougher questions. I'll give you tougher answers, which is what happened. Right. It wasn't like, you know, I don't shy away. I don't do what the vegans do and shy away. You know, they act like tough guys on YouTube, but when you put real questions to these people, they don't want to answer. And I don't know if you noticed this in a movie, but I was trying to do a movie where I had people from both sides and I went to the top vegan guys. I went to Walter Willett. I went to Dean Arnish. I went to Michael Greger and McDougall. I went to all of these guys. I actually went to a bunch more, but I couldn't just do a whole film of everyone that just told me to basically kiss their ass, they're not going to do it. But I put the top ones when you agree, Arnish, Willett, yes. you know, these are the top top ones. I, I could have gone through all the vegan doctors I went to it was, the list was way too long. And I didn't want to bore people with it. But you saw the answers. I actually put their letters on screen to show you back what these people had to say to me. And the one thing I did do is I spared McDougal because McDougal kept writing back to my assistant and he started badgering her really? saying, why would you even work for a person like me? Wow. <laughs> I, look, I didn't want to turn it into a movie of how crazy these top vegan doctors are. But if I got my assistant Megan here right now, if she told you what was going on, or if I showed you those letters, you would go, okay, you just, you printed up those letters yourself. There's no way this guy's that nuts. But in fact, he is. So, but I couldn't make a whole movie about that. I had to do something.
0: I think it's important for listeners to understand that, you know, you went above and beyond trying to find a balanced discourse talking about, you know, the meat debate, if you will, you know, whether it's animal-based protein, plant-based protein, you know, listeners of this podcast know that Dr. Gabrielle Lyon is someone that I adore. And she is, you know, muscle-centric medicine, talks about the superiority of animal-based protein. And so, you know, we've had some very interesting discussions with patients both on, you know, not just in groups or one-on-one, but online. And people really are very, very confused about the quality of protein. They're confused about how much protein they need to eat. They're confused about whether or not plant-based protein is even digestible. And yes, there are some sources of complete plant-based proteins that have, you know, the amino acid profile that would allow you to consume sufficient amounts of protein, but usually at the detriment of your carbohydrate intake or the detriment of consuming way more calories. I think the comparison is maybe it's six to eight ounces of steak is equivalent to six cups of quinoa, but six cups of quinoa is hundreds and hundreds of grams of carbohydrate. And if, 88.2% of the population is metabolically unhealthy. That's a disaster.
1: Well, you know, let's go back just a little bit more than that. I don't like to get sciencey whenever I'm in social mm-hmm. media, but let's get a little sciencey. You know, the average person thinks, okay, you know, the average person knows the three, you know, macronutrients you got protein, fat, carbohydrate. What they don't realize is a lot of times within those, there are these the subsets. So, an example, you know, you have complex carbohydrates, and you have simple carbs, uh, sugar is a great example of a simple carb, it will go in and cause a quick spike and come down, it'll burn like you threw a, a tissue into a, a fireplace, it, It'll just flame really fast. A complex carb will last a little longer. And most dietitians will tell you, oh, these are the better carbs. Oh, contraire, they're a problem. Because unlike the spike that you get from say, sugar, a complex carb like bread or pasta or rice or any other grain will cause what's known as a load. So it will go up and it will stay up for a longer time. So you have to keep dumping insulin on that to try to put that fire out, right? So I didn't mean to get into the whole weeds of that, but you have within carbohydrates, you have at least two that you can recognize. And when it comes to fat lipids, there are so many different forms of fat lipids out there. You have long chain, medium chain, small chain, and then you could get into all the cholesterol fats and how they're all different. You could just get into just a ton of what makes up a fat cell. So just like with carbohydrate it's not one thing. Well, with protein, it's even more complex because with protein and most people have heard this term amino acid, you know, we use amino acids for everything. And the deal is, is that there are tons and tons and tons of amino acids, right? Well, You can make the best pea protein in the world, the number one pea protein in the world, and you will not have anywhere near the bioavailability of all of the amino acids you need. So it's not a complete protein, not even close. And the only place you're going to find all of the amino acids that the human body needs is from animal source proteins, eggs. And some dairy doesn't have all of them, but dairy and, you know, muscle meat from animals, and also, you know, livers and hearts and everything else tongue, you're going to get all of these proteins, but you won't get that from any other source other than animal protein. And that's where we're missing the boat. As a matter of fact, you may notice in the movie, they kept saying, Hey, listen, vegans, you can be a healthy vegan, but you have to take b12, right? The vegans will tell you that you need to take exogenous vitamins, which always leads to my question. What did we do before 1947, before we actually knew about, you know, B12 as a vitamin? A vegan couldn't be a vegan before that day in history without being very unhealthy. Now they're very unhealthy. You heard Lear Keith in the movie. She said, look, you know, my bones got brittle. Uh, You know, I, as a reproductive person, I couldn't have a baby. I couldn't, you know, veganism really just, ruined her life. And she's not the only one, you know, this happens over and over and over. And there's a group of people out there telling you eat this way, we're going to give everything you need and this fake meat, except you're not. And not only that, but it's worse for the environment. And it's worse for you than eating actual real food.
0: Well, I think it's an important distinction that we're in such a dogmatic time, where people want to be put in a box. You know, you're in the carnivore box, you're in the keto box, you're in the plant-based box, you're in the vegan box. And yet I remind people that if people are really looking to clean up their diet, if they're really looking to improve their nutritional profile, what they're ideally striving for is to eat less processed food, right? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And if if people are doing that without the use of keto junk food, paleo junk food, vegan junk food, and yes. I believe a Twinkie is technically vegan.
1: (laughs) I I Um, think it is too, yes. Yeah,
0: technically vegan. So if you really are striving to eat a less processed food diet, I can respect that, irrespective of what label or bucket you put yourself in. What I think becomes dangerous is not acknowledging intrinsically what our bodies need to thrive. And I do have a family member who I will not call out on social media or in this podcast that went vegan for ethical reasons, moral reasons, which I think anyone that's listening can understand and respect. But unfortunately what it turned into was she derailed her health so significantly that she ended up being profoundly osteoporotic. She was really inflamed and gained 30 pounds. She wasn't sleeping properly. She was stressed to the max. You can imagine every vitamin that she was, you know, vitamin profile that they drew with labs, whether it was vitamin D, whether it was iodine, selenium. I mean, every vitamin profile you can imagine was off. Her adrenals were overtaxed and it's probably taken her 10 years to get back to what I would agree. I would identify as a reasonable, you know, health profile for someone at the stage of life that she's in. And she would be the first person to say that she felt really good for a few months. And then she couldn't get satiated. So she just kept eating more and more and more food without finding that satiety. And so she was eating a primarily, I mean, really just a plant-based diet without any even plant-based fats. So you start to wonder if people maybe feel great for two or three months because they're eating a less processed diet. And then they kind of continue with this diet because they're almost trying to prove to themselves that they don't need these animal-based sources of fats and protein, but yet Intrinsically, I think some of the reason why they've created these impossible burgers, these plant-based burgers that look a lot like meat is because people actually crave it. They actually crave the meat and they would be much better off having a burger than they would be if they were consuming these highly processed foods. So, one of the things I found fascinating was Pat Brown, who I was not aware of before your documentary, I guess he's the CEO, CIO, CEO of Impossible Burger.
1: That's correct. Yes.
0: And he said, which I found fascinating, that prehistoric technology is what's driving the animal-based food industry, and that cows are considered to be the most destructive invasive species on earth. And when I heard that, I was like, wow, that's profound.
1: But by the way, I always have to think about it when when you say Pat Brown, because the guy that runs the other company, Beyond Meat, is Ethan Brown. So. (laughs) when you said pat brown i may have looked like i didn't say wait what Yeah, because i have to always think about it because people almost think of or at least i do because i'm putting this film together for over a year you have impossible foods and beyond meats and that's the respective name of these companies and i was calling it you know the tale of two browns you know you have pat brown and (laughs) ethan brown from what i can tell they're not related whatsoever but they're the ceos and But let's go back to, because I know what you're talking about. Pat Brown is calling cows an invasive species on earth. And, you know, I did the simple task of looking around going, okay, where's the most methane on the planet coming from? And that methane is coming from, as you saw in the movie, India, Mm -hmm. right? Where they don't eat the cattle. So the cattle just have more cattle and they're running wild. I don't know if you've ever been to India, but when I was there, you got to hit your brakes because cows will just walk right in front of your car. If they walk through your house is considered some kind of religious thing and is good for you and what have you. And they're really sacred about their cattle over there. And they're putting out like, I'm to say close to 90% of all the methane of, of cattle in the world and they're not eating them. So according to Pat Brown, The guy who is for ethical reasons for not eating meat, he's saying we need to do some kind of, you know, we need to wipe them off the planet. So, anybody who's following Pat Brown and his famous company, (laughs) Impossible Foods, your guy wants every cow dead. He doesn't want you eating it, but he wants them dead. Am I wrong? Am I making this up? You watched the movie.
0: I did. I mean, he said he wants cows to be gone by 2035. And I thought
1: to myself, Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you just watched the movie. So it's all fresh in your head. Mm-hmm. You can't make this stuff up. This is coming out of their mouth. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, I do like one of those record scratches in a movie It's like, if you think he only might have said this once, let me introduce you to another time. He said this to another mm-hmm. crowd of people. And by the way, I could have done five more of those. But yeah, I figured after you show a couple of examples, people get the point. The problem with this movie was keeping it under five hours. You know, I kept it to an hour and a half. But it's what do you cut out? I could literally do another whole movie and not show one scene that I showed and have continued on with that. That's how crazy all this stuff is.
0: I think it's just really, I mean, I sat. With a curious, open mind, as I typically do if I'm watching a documentary, because sometimes you watch a documentary and you think to yourself, okay, I need to go do a little bit more digging. But obviously, this is a a debate that I'm well familiarized with, as my family and I always say, carnivore ish. We eat a lot of meat and some vegetables, and that's the happy place that we exist in. Although I, I always try to strive to not put us in a bucket per se, because it's this kind of reductionist thinking that a lot of people have gotten into. They want everyone in a bucket. They want everything to be defined. And yet I think humans are so much more interesting than keeping us constrained by labels, you know, per se. So what I found fascinating, as you stated, is that India has the bulk of the cow population because they don't eat their cows. They're a sacred animal there. And they produce 80% of the greenhouse gas emissions come and originate from India, which I did not know. And beyond that, what I found really interesting was the fact that most, again, this is a new kind of term for me, when we're talking about land where people can either farm or they have animal or livestock, the two thirds of what we have in the world is what they refer to as marginal land, which for listeners is speaking to the soil quality and the water level. And so- This is not ideal for crops, but this is where animals can be. And so that's why it's important that we do have animals because they are part of this ecosystem. They are very important. You know, it's only a third of what's available in terms of land is really available and high enough quality to actually grow crops. And so, you know, we've had Rob Wolf on this podcast talking about regenerative agriculture and how important it is that people are cognizant of the fact that it's not as easy as stating that you know, plants are bad and animals are good and vice versa because we genuinely need a little bit of both. And I, yeah. I think that a lot of the policies on monocropping, meaning there's a parcel of land and what's done is it's just the same crop is used over and over and over again, which creates to poor soil quality, which you know creates you know, demineralization of the soil, which means even if you're eating organic, we're probably not getting the same quality soil content that our grandparents had. And, and so there's definitely this trickle down effect. And I think it's important for people to understand that it's not as black and white as we might like to think that it is. And the other thing that I want to add, and I know that we'll probably touch on this, is that, you know, if you look at indigenous cultures, and so my husband and I were in Africa in September, we were in Rwanda, we were in Tanzania and Zanzibar. And in Rwanda, there's a lot of agriculture that goes on. We work very, very hard. But the concept of veganism is not something that you would see there because, you know, their lifestyle is just so hard. I mean, they do a lot of manual labor. They're out farming all day long. There isn't, I mean, Rwanda is probably the cleanest country I've ever been in in my entire life, which surprises people. But there's a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables. They don't have the processed food industry like we do here. You just don't see it. I think they had one fast food restaurant and they all found it kind of a peculiarity. They were like, we don't understand this Kentucky fried chicken thing. Is that something that's about Kentucky? I mean, is this something Americans eat? I was like, gosh, I hope not. But the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, there's so much more to unpack about these issues. It's so much more than what you see on social media or you see politicians or celebrities talking about veganism for the most part, I'm not talking about vegetarianism, but veganism is largely a a construct of very wealthy countries because the average person can't just eat plants, you know, can't just have abide by a vegan diet because they would not be healthy. And that's the concern that I have is that, you know, this has really become a, a social construct that is, and I think about some of the celebrities that embrace this kind of mindset it's something that only someone that has a very wealthy lifestyle that would be able to embrace. It's not what the average person can do and certainly not what third world countries could embrace because, you know, they have people there that are just barely getting by with maybe they've got a cow and they've got a couple of chickens and they farm their land. They work very hard for their food.
1: Yeah. You know, I grew up or Italian family. I think, well, I'm over-exaggerating by the time my parents were the first to go to college and- they became school teachers. So I grew up, you know, lower middle class, I guess, or middle, I don't even know what it is. But my, I lived right next door to my grandparents. And these people still, you know, there was a cow slaughtered every year. And, you know, we had five acres of garden, you know, they, it was almost like Italy comes to Louisiana, Mm -hmm. the way they were concerned, they weren't churning their own butter by the time I was a kid. But There were those old churns where I would go, hey, grandpa, what's this thing? Oh, we couldn't go to the grocery store back, you know, just a few years ago. We would have to sit here and and churn it ourselves. So, and all of these people lived to be close to 100 years old, Mm -hmm. eating vegetables from our home garden, eating, you know, meat. And there was a lot of hunting that went on in my family. I've carried on a tradition, do a lot of hunting myself. But, you know, that was poor people then. Now you look at poor people and you look at underserved people in this country. Well, they have no, they don't have gardens and, you know, some of them are inner city and everything else. You know, we lived out in the country. They don't have that opportunity. A lot of them happen to be, you know, African-American and Hispanic and everything else And the same Hollywood elite that's yelling about, you know, BLM and, you know, everyone, you know, all this stuff, you know, whatever it is, you know, are telling you, hey, now go do this thing that you can't afford. Well, they can't afford it. You know, you want to bring, I hate to beat up on him right now because he's in trouble for, you know, the shooting that happened on the set. But he was in my movie. I could, not You know, as a matter of fact, it was talked about to get rid of Alec Baldwin because he's sitting at these world conferences telling people on his high horse with all of his millions, eat like this. Yet most people can't eat like this, right, you know. Right. And by the way, if you're going to eat like that, you better have money for exogenous vitamins and everything else, because you're not going to do it otherwise, yeah. right? Yeah. So what's coming out of one side of their mouth doesn't match what's coming out the other side of these same people's mouths, right? I just thought I'd bring that up since since you did, right?
0: Yeah. No, no, uh, I mean it, it's, it's a me- strange thing. At some point, we've all been sold a big. slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Ignites Metabolism Yeah, no. And and I think it's really important. You know, I trained in inner city Baltimore and being a suburban girl my entire life, it was the best kind of training because, you know, we would go to these corner markets and I was always surprised at what little fresh produce was available. It was all hyper palatable, highly processed foods. And, you know, we would be talking to our patients. I mean, as a baby nursing student and a baby nurse practitioner student, And we would be talking to our patients about nutrition, which back then, let me be very clear, I I didn't know as much as I know now, but there was no fresh produce. You know, they didn't have gardens in their backyard. They were doing the best that they could. And they sure as heck weren't going to have the funds to be able to ascribe to a vegan lifestyle. I mean, they were lucky if their food stamps or their WIC allowed them to buy much of anything. I can't tell you how many, you know, we would do these. Home evaluations and we would see moms that would have the oven open with crawling children because they had no heat. And at least the oven would heat their tiny apartment. So, you know, it's very hard for me to watch whether it's James Cameron or other Hollywood elite having these conversations and just recognizing that they're not living the average person's lifestyle. And, And I think that's important to identify that. The extravagances and the advantages that so many of these people have. And and let me be clear, I think you and I obviously have lots of advantages and lots of options, but I think it's also important to just identify that you are not going to get the complete amino acid, which is what protein is broken down, and that your body's going to be able to assimilate and use for fuel. It just isn't going to be the same if you're not consuming some type of animal-based, whether it's eggs or cheese or dairy. You know, I know some of the vegetarians that, that I interact with, they still do some animal-based fats or byproducts. And that's like, how they kind of round out their diets.
1: Well, you know, to your point, you know, I'm the type of guy, you know, some people think I'm a little too hard. I, you know, I, I'm always looking for a universal truth. It's like, what's the truth? Your liver... You know, whenever I consult with people, I always tell them, tell me everything. I want you to start with, I wake up and. Mm-hmm. And if you wake up and you urinate, start with that. <laughs> because I need to know what's going into your mouth at all times, or I can't help you mm-hmm. because I need to now think like your liver. And your liver is a meritocracy. It, mm-hmm. Your liver, you know, I've always said your liver's like the worst gangster in the world. If your liver had a gun, it would hold it sideways like that, because that's what they do in the movie when you're a gangster. You hold them yeah. sideways. Mm-hmm. I, I've, I've always wanted to say in these movies, you know, if you hold it upright, there's a little thing on the top that you can aim with, it, mm-hmm. know, but no, they hold it sideways. Your liver is a gangster. Mm-hmm. And as I always say, it doesn't give an F, it doesn't care. What you put in your liver, your liver is going to process, period, right? It doesn't worry about your feelings. It doesn't worry about what you read or saw on YouTube or what Vinny or Rich Roll or anyone told you online, your liver is going to do what your liver is going to do. We can lie to ourselves because we have a conscious and a subconscious and and everything else. So we can sit around and lie to, to ourselves and go, I don't know how I got fat. I don't know. Okay, your liver knows how you got fat because it had to process everything and it did. Right. So there's a universal truth there. Yet you have these people telling you the truth is not the truth. And I thought it was funny when I had James Cameron in the movie talking about his pea protein company and his wife who really, really, really looked like she can use a piece of meat.
0: I was surprised because she was part of Titanic. And I remember thinking, gosh, she was probably the same age I was when that movie came out.
1: Who is, I don't even know who his wife is. What's her name? Who was she in Titanic? Because I think she was the granddaughter
0: of Rose. So when they had the, you know, 1990s version of Rose, it was this elderly woman kind of recounting her experiences on the Titanic. And she was the granddaughter. So she was this very young woman. And I just recall when I saw her as like she looks anemic. That was my first thought when I saw her in that in your documentary, I thought to myself, you know, she looks like she probably needs some heme protein, for sure, without question.
1: Let's see, I'm looking it up right now. I'm finding a picture of her. Is it Susie Amos, I guess is her yep, name. That sounds right. Yeah. Okay, let's see if we can look up. I want to see how old she is, because I'm looking at this woman going, Really, you know, because you know, when I'm doing the movie all the time. Okay, she was born in January 1962.
0: She's much older than I thought she was.
1: Wait, way older? We're the same age. No,
0: no, no. But I'm saying, like, I I thought she was in her 20s in that movie. She must have been in her 30s. But I I thought she just looked very. um, She had not aged well. Let's put it. Okay,
1: so she's my age. Okay. She's 59. You look much healthier than her. Okay, but let's not compare her to me. (laughs) Let's compare her to a rich 59-year-old who can get the best care, who's got, look, I lived in Hollywood for 30 years and worked with these people. You have yoga teachers, you have masseurs and masseuses on call. Let me explain to you how Hollywood works, because all the top trainers know the top masseurs and masseuses, and we interchange, like, that's how we did it. If anyone is wondering how you get in and how you stay in, You know which masseuse and masseur to turn on to who and they know who to send when they need a trainer and so on and so Mm -hmm. forth. That's why when you see these people, they look so damn good. You go, oh, my God, uh, J-Lo. J-Lo has got to be in her 50s somewhere, right?
0: Early 50s. Yeah. The the
1: woman looks like she's in her 30s. Well, I
0: think the joke about J-Lo and I'm going down a rabbit hole. But I think this is important for transparency she tries to tell people she's never done Botox She hasn't done anything. And you look at photos and I'm like, there is no shame if a man or a female wants to do things to make themselves look more youthful. There's no shame in that. But don't lie about it. (laughs) I think people look at her and they're like, there's no way you look that darn good without a lot of help.
1: Well, I can't speak because sometimes I know a lot of stuff. Yep. So I got to stay away from it. But what I can tell you is I'm looking at pictures (laughs) of this woman who's supposedly my age, not good. Not good. She she doesn't
0: look, I mean, after working in healthcare for 20 some odd years, I'm a pretty good judge of age. And I was like, I was surprised that she had not aged well.
1: Yeah, this is not good. I'm seeing a picture here. If you told me, and look, I'm not being facetious here. My mother-in-law is 83 years old, Mm -hmm. Rina and Kristen's mom. Okay. Looks about like this woman who's 59. Call me an asshole. Call me a jerk. Oh, Vinny, come on. Not everyone. This woman has the best of the best. She's in Hollywood. She's got people around the clock. She's got the best of the best. She doesn't look good. Mm -hmm. I didn't even recognize her as being someone from a movie just a few years ago. And she's in my movie. Yeah. Standing there not even talking, you know, it's just James yapping away at the mic and she's just standing next to him. Okay,
0: that's probably the dynamic that they like. I've heard he's got a pretty strong
1: personality. Again, I can't speak to that.
0: I'll say it. That's what I've heard. I obviously don't know either of these individuals.
1: You may have with heard something.
0: Yeah, but with that being said, I think what it really speaks to is that you have individuals who have a lot of money to invest in these corporations and these companies that have a large impact on the policies that impact all of us. Right. And that, to me, was this prevailing theme through the movie that. You know, when you know more, you you do more, and so I, I think it's important for people to kind of wake up. Whether it's Bill Gates or James Cameron, Bill Gates, who does not look healthy. I think I got in trouble on Twitter because I passed around a photo of him with what I was calling "soy boy" or "man boobs." Yeah. And for listeners who've never heard me use those terms, I can be a little snarky on Twitter. And I was calling out and saying, "This is a man who's making policies that are impact all of us." And is this really the person we want to, I'm not saying he's not a brilliant businessman, he's smart, but he's not taking care of himself because if he was, he wouldn't look like that. And so I kind of took a little bit of beating on Twitter when I made that comment, but the point I'm trying to make is that these very wealthy, whether you call them benefactors, investors, they are driving public policy. They are impacting all of us.
1: Yeah, and look, Bill Gates, if anyone remembers Bill from back in the day, he was this little skinny, spindly kind of wonderkin who created Microsoft and became one of the youngest billionaires of all time. And these people have a lot of money. Bill and Melinda, I'm not friends with them. I would see them up at the Yellowstone Club and um, up in Montana and, you know, but don't know them. But I remember whenever I'd see him from, oh, my God. That's the spindly little guy. He looks like this, like he's gonna die. Mm-hmm. And then you're coming out and you're pushing all of this world initiative and doing all this stuff going, we need to change the world. It's like Bill, shouldn't you at least get rid of three of the five chins before you do that? Maybe get a bra that fits something, do something, <laughs> you know, before you start proselytizing to everyone else, because you look horrible. Yeah. You just don't look good. You don't look like the guy you used to look like. I get it. You're old. You know, we all get old, but we don't have to get old and end up looking like he looks. Right. Right.
0: Right. And something that's really important to me, and it's a theme that I bring into all the podcast guests that come on is metabolic flexibility, metabolic health, critically important. We know that 88.2% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy, and that's a study from 2018. I'm sure now it's probably worse. It might be. 87, 88, 90%. And so everyone should be concerned about that. You know, what are the things we can be doing to improve our health? Now I want to pivot a little bit and talk about fat. Now you have two wonderful documentaries about fat. If you haven't watched them, you should go check them out. They're not super long. Like Benny said, his documentaries tend to be hour and 30 minutes. So you can digest it in one or two sittings, but you bring on some of the best, what I believe is best science writers that are out there you know people that are really changing helping to change policy build awareness nina take who's been on the podcast gary tobes a lot of other individuals that i think really get us as clinicians really thinking about changing the narrative that we have with our patients but let's at least touch on what changed in the 1980s because this is important any of us that were growing up in the 1980s lived in the 1980s there were a lot of policy changes there was a narrative that shifted towards focusing on fat and demonizing fat and at the consequence of us going from, you know, largely being fairly healthy to all of a sudden having extraordinary rates of obesity and metabolic disease. And one thing that I thought was particularly powerful, because for me being a visual learner, you had a picture of Woodstock, the original Woodstock from the 1960s. And then you had the, you know, 1990s version And the stark difference between very thin, healthy-looking individuals at Woodstock versus, you know, 30 years later was really profound. And that, I mean, that's not 20-plus years ago. And so I, I think it's important for us to kind of unpack what happened to the processed food industry and the narrative that was changing with probably your own clients, but I know with patients and the conversations that clinicians were having with their patients.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny, I used Woodstock in 1969, and then the new Woodstock, and what I thought about doing, and I did it and and I changed it to the Woodstock to Woodstock thing. I showed people who weren't really exercising or doing anything just living their life in 1969. And what I did have was some people coming across the finish line of triathlons, full length triathlons, like these people trained hard enough to go 16 hours because the cutoff is right before 17 hours. And most of them, that means they swam over two miles. They got in shape to ride a bike after that swim for 112 miles. And then after that 112 mile bike ride, they did a 26.2 mile full marathon. These people were in incredible shape. And if you watch them come across that, the 14 and 15 hour mark, and see, most of them are obese, right? And, you're going, okay, I've just proven by going to and I've been to a lot of finish lines, a lot of marathons and triathlons, that you can't outrun a bad diet. Because the first thing that happens to these people when you do these marathons and and triathlons is you buy the magazine. And the first thing the magazine says is, you need all the multidextrin you can get in your body, you need to keep fueling up every 20 minutes, right. But the reason I left that out was because I would have had to have taken the movie in a different direction, mm-hmm. right? Because now I'm bringing in something else, you know, the whole exercise component. I just wanted to show a snapshot of these two times in history, 30 years apart, same event. And by the way, I didn't find one picture of each. Go online, folks. You can go look at a thousand pictures of 1969 Woodstock. Most people are naked or very scantily dressed. It's true. And Go wise to one 30 years later. And I wasn't cherry picking photos here at all. I kind of went, that's good enough. And that's good enough because it's what the truth was. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to go very deep. So what happened in that time? Well, it was very confusing for me. Well, I talked about it in Fat one where the McGovern commission started off to try to figure out how to feed poor black people in the deep South. And they were trying to come up with food stamps. You know, we didn't have food stamps. You mentioned, what are they called now? You mentioned WIC. Ch- WIC. Yeah, WIC so is,
0: yeah, is, is what I saw in Baltimore.
1: Right, which is a form of food stamps, mm-hmm. right? So the Democratic Party was trying to get another mm-hmm. Kennedy elected, Robert F. Kennedy, who ended up dying during that cycle. Not from health, folks. He died of a gunshot wound. At any rate, McGovern said, hey, if we can prove that we need to give poor people food stamps, then they'll vote for us. Right? That's the method they were using. So they put together what was called the McGovern committee. Interestingly enough, that committee met on and off for 10 years. (laughs) They just kept meeting and meeting and meeting and meeting. And during that time, Ansel Keys looked around and went, Wait a minute, you know, I've been pushing this initiative since the late 1950s of carbohydrates being the main food Let me see if I can push that through the McGovern committee. At least I'll have some kind of stronghold. And that's the part of history that most people don't realize that this guy from Minnesota university, who he was basically the doubt. And I'm not getting political here. Ansel Keys was the Dr. Fauci of his time. As a matter of fact, Fauci was like, Hey, Ansel hold my beer. Let me show you how this was really done. So he pushed this initiative through. So the McGovern committee that started out to try to figure out food stamps, ended up at the end coming up with a food pyramid and said, this is the way we need to eat. All of these carbohydrates on the bottom and then on the middle shelf, more carbohydrates. On the top, we'll put just a little meat. And as a matter of fact, we'll say dairy, but we'll put kind of dairy off to the side and just a little dairy. But you want most of it to be a big base of carbohydrates. And guys like me, you got to remember, I went through the whole 70s in the gym, right? I walked into a gym when I was eight years old, and kind of, you know, clean towels and oiled the machines. And Joe showed me how to use all this stuff. And it was all about eat eggs, eat dairy, eat meat. That's how you grow. Right? I became a good athlete through the 70s. I became I played D1 football, they don't just let you get a scholarship because you you were very average, you have to be one of the best high school players in the country, right? So I'm going through. So I get to college, right? I'm in college. And, you know, on training table, it's eggs and beef for breakfast and all the bacon you can shove in your mouth. And the only people that really ate, you know, peanut butter and jelly were a big lineman who was trying to put some girth on their gut. You know, we looked at bread and all this kind of stuff as how you put girth on. That's what the linemen did, right? They were trying to gain that girth. They're like big sumo wrestlers. But a guy like me, you want to put on muscle, so that your head doesn't get knocked off, but you need to be fast. So it needs to be functional weight, right? So this is what we did all the way through college. And during that time, there started being this talk about high carb. And all I could think was my poor Italian grandmother would always say, Don't eat too much pasta, you're going to get fat. No education, by the way, from Italy. These are Italians going, Oh, that's too much pizza, eat some chicken, have the fish not too much with the pizza, right? This is how And all of a sudden, in 1980, I want to say 84 or somewhere around there. I was in Aspen training people. I was one of the early trainers in this country. And I'm in Aspen. And everyone's reading this book called eat to win by Dr. Robert Haas. And everyone's going out there's a place called Metzalunas, which became famous because there was one in Brentwood That's where O.J.'s wife had her last meal before someone killed her. At any rate, I'm going to Metzalunas with these rich people every night because they're sponsoring me to be an Aspen and get them in shape and do all this stuff. And they're all getting mounds of pasta. And I'm like, you're not going to get shrimp on that? You're not going to get like chicken, chicken cat? They got cacciatore on the menu. You're not going to get the cacciatore? Look, they got asabuco. No, no. Dr. Robert Haas says that will make you fat this is how you stay healthy. And I'm thinking, but I got two Italian grandmothers and my great grandmother from the old country. She barely speaks English. They have something else to say about this. And it turns out that all three of those women, none had educations, Mm -hmm. were all three correct. Now, how can these poor Italian great grandmothers and grandmothers know so much information, yet Robert Haas has put this book out called Eat to Win, And all of a sudden, everything became a big pasta dish. Next thing you know, you have cheesecake factories on every street corner by the 90s, where everyone is like, Oh, macaroni grill, endless pasta dish. Why? Because it cost them two cents to make and they're charging you a ton of money for all the pasta you want. The dish never goes empty. We'll come put some more pasta on it. We started doing all this stuff. And then Oh, it got worse. It got worse. Snack wells came around. They were horrible. And once we got it, oh, you remember this, right? Mm-hmm. You're young, but you remember this. How can you get fat from snack wells? There's no fat in them. Mm-hmm. Only carbohydrates, snack wells.
0: Yeah, we got fatter and fatter. Well, I just remember that the resounding thing. So I was graduating college in the early 1990s and my roommate and I, you know, we were mindful of our fat intake. And I remember we bought non-fat cheese, which by the way, doesn't melt and is disgusting. And we bought snack wells. And snack wells what do you think happens when you take the fat out of something
1: you Please, put pal- more sugar. the
0: sugar right to make it palatable they were awful it was like eating cardboard and you were never satiated so this is kind of goes back to the same thing that you know when you take when you demonize fat and you take fat out of things you don't have that same flavor profile you don't feel satiated you want to continue eating so it's a boom for the processed food industry and it comes to the detriment of our health I mean I, I think back to when I was in school, I mean, you might have one or two obese kids. And now, you know, a lot of my peers are talking about the rate of obesity in children and, you know, health issues that you would see in an adult you're seeing now in children, you know, Nash, which is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. They're seeing type two diabetes in children. You know, they're seeing issues related to elevated uric acid levels, which is making, I mean, it's just unacceptable And yet, it really started with those dietary recommendations and the food choices and that shit, that kind of paradigm shift that occurred. So, you mentioned, and I promise this ties into our conversation, a really interesting variation of a new diet. It was a a diet that I had not been familiarized with, that is kind of a modern day planetary health diet. Yeah. Which I promise kind of aligns itself with our conversation. So there's this eat Lancet and they are recommending this planetary health diet, which is supported by, of, you know, many of these vegan physicians and, you know, Walter Willett in particular is affiliated with the Harvard school of public health. And from what I understand has been there for a long, long time. So he's had tremendous influence over that university. And, you know, when we're really talking about hardcore academics, Harvard is held in great esteem. So you can imagine the influence that he has over a lot of the policies that are being made. But let's unpack what this planetary health diet is because when I looked at this, this is not going to make us healthier. <laughs> this is this is going to be a problem.
1: Uh, do you remember at the end where, you know, I showed the World Economic Forum and this guy, Klaus Schwab is up there and it almost looks like something Mike Myers would have done in one mm-hmm. of his. What was that movie where he's like, Mr. Evil? Yeah. Yes.
0: Old faith? No. My husband has all those
1: Austin Powers movies. Austin is Austin Powers, yeah. but you know, it's like, I will kill the world and I will have one million dollars. You know, that Klaus is up there and it looks like I took that from a movie. Yeah. It, it's like, well, wait, where did he get that? Pe- it, didn't you feel like, you know, every time I get the chills every time I see that guy, he's like sitting in a chair, kind of like Mr. Evil from those movies. It's like, I will change the world. (laughs) It's like you're sitting there going, this is what's going on. And we're all asleep at the wheel. Yeah. We're we're all just, you know, yeah. Klaus is up there doing this thing and we're all going, yeah, you go, brother. You go, Klaus Schwab. He even has a name that sounds Ah. evil.
0: Yeah. Well, and for the sake of listeners that may not be familiar with this sanitary health diet, which I was not, it's half a plate of fruit, vegetables, and nuts. Yeah. The other half is grains, plant proteins, unsaturated plant oils, and then it's a modest portion of meat and dairy and some, quote unquote, starches and sugar. But what I found really fascinating was that it's two and a half pounds of carbohydrates per day. Do you think no. that sounds like a good suggestion recommendation for a metabolically unhealthy population?
1: Two and a half pounds? I mean, if you said to me, Vinny, you need to eat two and a half pounds of carbohydrates I would have to, it would take me, and I'll say, well, how much time I have? And it's like, well, you have to do it within a week. I think I can probably skirt it in over the course of seven days, two and a half pounds. Think about what that is, two and a half pounds. I don't see how, and they want you to have this every day. But if you look at the food pyramid, it's not that far off. It's like. I want to say like I talked about in my first movie like 11 or 12 or 13 servings of grains per day or you know sugar and grains and they don't even tell you what a serving is yeah. so if I want a big plate of pasta that's one serving yeah. I know what the servings are because I went and looked it up but you don't just find this by googling it you got to do deep google yeah. like you got to go 10 pages in and find some wow. government sites wow. and and go like really dark web to figure it out well, but these okay. guys Go on. Were you no, no,
0: no, no. I was going to say, I just, I find it also disturbing because it makes me think about the oatmeal argument. I don't know if you've heard this on social media that, you know, a lot of us have started talking openly that oatmeal is about the worst thing that you can eat <laughs> if right. you're an adult because it's designed to be like dessert, but most of us can't handle that carbohydrate load. And so my teenagers who are very athletic and are very active, they can handle a bowl of oatmeal. Sure. But the average American cannot. And so it kind of goes back to when you were saying, you know, how much it would take me a week to eat that amount of carbohydrate. And I think about the oatmeal. Like people always say, what's wrong with oatmeal? You know, if I call it out on social media, people get very triggered when you talk about their starchy grains and their, you know, gluten breads and everything else because, you know, they derive a lot of satisfaction. You know, there's all these, you know, chemical byproducts of consuming. A lot of these specific macronutrients, whether it's neurotransmitter involvement, you know, serotonin, dopamine, et cetera, whether it's the hormonal influx, you know, for a lot of people, if we're talking about a metabolically unhealthy population, we already have people that have an insulin problem. And if you're eating frequently and you're eating a lot of carbohydrate, you're not serving your body well.
1: No, once your body is broken, it's almost like telling an alcoholic, Bab, you can go off every Saturday night and just do what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I haven't seen that, but if, several years ago, I came up with the F quinoa t-shirt because, I, you know, everyone was like, well, what's wrong with quinoa? It's got protein. It's like, yeah, no, that's not, no, it's a carbohydrate. It's not, you know, that's the vegan. That's another one of those vegan lies. Quinoa is no more special than as a matter of fact, I can argue that rice is better for you than quinoa, if I was going to sit around and argue. But yeah, you know, they come up with all these different things that they want you to think and believe and It's not an argument whatsoever. It's it's just not good for you. Eat it and have a continuous blood glucose monitor on you and tell me what happens.
0: Yeah. And I think we'll come out in that. Well, it's interesting. I got in trouble on social media recently. I'm not an arguer on social media. I just, it isn't worth my effort or my time but there's a vegan cardiologist who came after me like a harpy, you know, kind of swooped in. And my listeners know I'm very respectful of people, and so we were having this conversation. And she was telling me it was dangerous that I was suggesting non-diabetics have glucometers or have continuous glucose monitors. And in that context, I said I think it's one of the most empowering things that you can wear, even if it's short term, if you're doing a continuous glucose monitor. Or if you're looking at a glucometer and you're checking your blood sugar, because if you know more, you'll do better. And I think a lot of people unknowingly don't realize that certain foods they eat are elevating their blood sugar far longer than it should be. Or, you know, they're getting these massive glucose spikes. And I tell people, if your blood sugar goes up by more than 30 points, you've had too many carbs. I mean, that's the awareness that people need to kind of, you know, figure out for themselves that, you know, what foods serve them best. And it goes back to the buckets, you know, the dogma that you know, sometimes people need to be carnivores, some people need to have a little lower carbohydrate, some people might benefit from cleaning up their diet and doing plant based, maybe for a month or two, and then, you know, bringing indoctrinating some more protein, but this mindset that more processed starchy carbs are going to be better for the average person is just blatantly false.
1: Yeah, it, there couldn't be anything further from the truth. And I think the problem with the for, for the vegan doctor that you were talking to, the problem becomes, you know, I can sit here and just, you know, bloviate on, on your liver's a meritocracy, and your liver will always tell the truth. But guess what, when you have a thing on your arm, that's connected to that thing in your hand, that cell phone that most people can't let go of, And it's telling you what's happening in real time. The argument to that doctor is now completely over with. So, of course, that doctor doesn't want anyone to see the truth because we can now show you the truth with the CGM. And that that doesn't help this doctor's bottom line or any doctor who's telling people because now people more and more can see the truth. And then you have to go to your doctor and say, well, doctor, you told me this. And I guarantee you that doctor has tons of people walking in there going, hey, doc. Look at this, look at this. And that doctor's going, this is blowing my whole, I've been lying to these people for all this time. And now they have the truth right there on their phone. Now, what do I do? What do I tell them this time? How does that work?
0: But I think it's a distinction of qualifying and saying, you know, we should be lifelong learners. Even if we're clinicians, we should be learning throughout our lifetime. You know, when I knew better, I changed what I was saying to my patients and my whole methodology. And I think there are definitely people that are saying, oh my gosh, i learned something from my patient. I need to look into this. I need to, you know, I have to be transparent. And, you know, when we know better, we do better as clinicians, as human beings. And I think on many, many levels, there's a lot of biohacking devices, whether it's Nora ring, whether it's a CGM, any of these devices that track information. And I see that as a win. Like if I can get the patient to be more concerned about their health, that's beneficial but also kind of learning more about the process. Like I know more about hormones and, you know, whether it's insulin and glucagon and glu- blood glucose and leptin and, you know, cholecystis kind of, I mean, all these cetating hormones, leptin, et cetera. I now know more, far more now than I ever, ever did. And a lot of it has just become this rabbit hole that you dive down it. So I, I think, you know, your documentary is certainly shining a light on, there's this lack of transparency with some of these discussions. And I think there are important discussions to be had. One thing I want to tie into the planetary health diet, you know, you mentioned, and it's a nice visualization. So you have your handout and you're talking about portions. These are the portions of cheese, whether it's cubes of cheese, but these are the portions of beef or animal-based protein that this planetary health diet recommends. And it's like the size of a cube of cheese. And when I say a cube of cheese, it's like, when you're at a dinner party and you have like hors d'oeuvres being passed and there's a little toothpicks and a piece of cheese, that's the portion of animal-based protein that is being recommended. And I giggled even more when I realized when you had your handout and you had four portions and you said, this is the portion of meat that this diet is recommending. And I thought to myself, my kids would scarf that down in like two bites. Like it's, it's almost laughable, but that's right. a that that's protein that they're recommending.
1: That was for a family of four, right? I the four kids. So here's what I did, you know, I was on set, you know, because the way I have to do my documentaries is I have to plan out what I'm going to do. And I sat down, I went out to California, and I sat down one time in front of a camera. Mm-hmm. And you know, I have to know what's going to be coming. So I just do it all. I just talk it all into a camera. And so I have to pay for a set for that day, you know, there's cameraman and there's key grip and lighting guys and all that stuff. I know you're looking at it going, wow, all that you didn't look that good. So, you know, when you do that, you have to have a craft, it's called craft services. So you have to have craft service table and you know, and you gotta let these people break for lunch and do all this stuff and you have to feed them. Well, while we were there, I was talking about that on camera. And then I said, Let's cut the camera for a second. I said, do we have any kind of scale here? And they said, what well, kind of scale I said, like, like a gram scale, like, mm-hmm. and the guy actually, one of the guys, he goes, Yeah, I weigh my coffee. I have my coffee. Gra- I brought it with me so I can weigh my coffee beans because he likes to make the perfect coffee every day. I said, do me a favor, plop a piece of that cheese on your coffee mm-hmm. scale and let me know what it is. And he did. It turns out we just had to take a knife and shave a little bit off of one of those little tiny chunks of cheese. And he goes, Okay, that's the weight that they're talking about in the planetary health diet. So I said, Okay, take your scale and give me four like that. And that's where I did the this is what they want one person to eat every day. And this will feed a family of four. When you see it that way, you finally go, Okay, this is crazy. You know, go tell that to the. You were t- speaking of Africa. Go tell that to the Maasai people in Africa, right? <laughs> They're gonna. I'm sure those guys would hit you. <laughs> yeah, you all the meat. They only eat meat there. You know.
0: Well, it's interesting when we were in Zanzibar, I actually got to meet some of the Maasai tribe, and they were incredible. They were really incredible. Yeah. They're just the most tall, statuesque individuals I think I've ever seen. They were just, I mean, just these beautiful bodies and we were watching them, they were chanting and it was just an incredible opportunity to see just, I love everything about being on that continent and learning more about the culture. Now, what do you think is actually driving the concept of the planetary health diet? You know, you you made some kind of allusions to the net impact this will have on prices of meat and policies and taxes and subsidies. And, And this is something that know this awareness piece of your documentaries that I think is really important. You know, the big takeaway is like someone can advocate for these nutritional policies, but how does that impact us? Like those of us that are meat eaters, what will this do? Is this going to mean that we have less, you know, will we have to budget buying less meat because it's becoming increasingly more expensive?
1: I don't know that we know right now that there's been some supply chain breaks and meat has gone up in price and Look, I mean, these are multinational companies that are handing money to people like, and we show the trail, you know, companies like Cargill and and Unilever and even Tyson, which is a meat company, they funnel money to people like Walter Willett at Harvard, and then they do these really kind of dodgy epidemiological studies. And even within those studies, and Nina Teicholz has done a lot of work on this, within those studies, they prove that it's actually more meat is better for you, but they put that aside and then show you what they want you to see. So they squint really hard, even though it keeps saying meat is the way to go. They do these weird epidemiological studies, and then they squint really hard. And then Walter Willett gets paid, he hands some money down to a scientist to squint. And then you have these multinational companies with the likes of Bill Gates and all these other billionaires going, Okay, this is what we have let's put together this forum, it, the whole thing reeked of, <laughs> it was like mind boggling to watch what these people are doing. They're putting together these forums, and they're getting in on with the w, the World Health Organization and CDC. Do you find yourself
0: struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melanin melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients, and it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeka during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support, to sustain energy, provide mental clarity and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification. dranna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per That's 10% off your first purchase by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious, you know, on so many levels. I think that we have to be our own best advocates and we have to you know, look objectively. Unfortunately, there's almost a knee jerk reaction. You know, people are so polarized and so dogmatic that they don't listen. There's no more communication on both sides of the fence. And I think it's particularly distressing to me because I have children growing up through all of this and trying to, you know, navigate, you know, do we watch the national news? Do we watch cable TV news? Where do we get our information from? You know, how do we objectively look at things? You know, you touched on epidemiologic studies. And for anyone that's listening that's not familiarized with research, you know, terminology, epidemiologic studies are sometimes a good way of saying, "Hmm, there might be correlation, you know, and causation here, but we need to do deeper research. We need to look at randomized studies. We need to, you know, set up opportunities to learn more about this. Unfortunately, what ends up happening is the media will grab hold of or social media will grab hold of an epidemiologic study, and then they extrapolate it as fact. And I think that becomes dangerous. I think that is certainly something that I find particularly concerning. And I'll give you one example. A lot of people that follow me you know want to know if it's healthy to use certain medications. And so I always remind them that, You know, unfortunately, when I was a baby nurse practitioner, there was a big study that came out that said hormone replacement therapy is terrible, causes cancer. Well, you have a whole generation of women who went off hormone replacement therapy or women who didn't take hormone replacement therapy. We've come to find out that the study population for that particular study was not particularly healthy 65 year old women that already had either comorbid conditions or diabetics, smokers, well, they're not even a healthy population to look at the impact of using HRT. And so I remind people that it's really important that we can look at things objectively and say, okay, that wasn't a good study to extrapolate to a whole population of women because now we're seeing the side effects of not not considering hormone replacement therapy. So to answer your question, I think it just really begs deeper reflection. It really begs the conversation to be ongoing and to not be short-sighted And like I mentioned, whether it's the keyboard warriors on social media and affectionately, I have a avatar for, you know, when I get nasty messages or comments on social media, I always say this is Fred and Fred is a 45 year old obese man who lives in his parents' basement and does all sorts of things all day long on his keyboard warrior to try to make everyone's lives as miserable as his. So I think from the context and the perspective of, you know, we have to dig a little, we just have to have these ongoing discussions. That's why I think it's so, so important that people are creating these discussions, having these discussions, encouraging, encouraging people like ourselves to talk and to connect. Because if we're not talking and connecting, we can get very blind. We can get almost put like blinders on and we only want to think one way and that's dangerous and that's problematic.
1: Amen. You couldn't have said it in, I couldn't have said it any better is The question is, you know, where do we go from here? You know, someone like you and me, and and I've had these conversations with Nina and and other people, you know, and we'll sit around and go, are are we getting anywhere? And and then I'll remind her, is like, you know, when I started doing this back in two thousand eleven, and I wrote the book, and and the book became a big deal, and the whole thing, no one really knew about this, you know. Now, as I say in the movie, you know. When someone like Vinny goes on the internet or someone like Cynthia goes on the internet or someone like Sean Baker goes on the internet and we cure one person each. Okay. There you go. But then we cure two people. And then Trochalasian comes into the equation. And now we're curing more people. And Brett Shear comes into the equation and Brian Linsky's and all these other people start joining in. Dr. Tony Hampton. Everybody starts curing people, right? Well, now it's not just a couple of thousand at Vinny Cures or Cynthia Cures or Trochalasian Cures or Nina Taishos or anyone else. Now, it's not tens of thousands. As I said in the movie, it's hundreds of thousands that go off of blood pressure medicine. Type 2 diabetes goes away. Their A1Cs go from 10 and 11 down to 4.8. They stop taking tons of medication. Okay, it's own epidemiological study. Isn't that the actual basis for an epidemiological study? Or or am I just making this up? Am I just fooling myself? I'm always telling that to Nina, you know, we might think that we're not making a difference. But because we wrote these books, and we did this, and I know you have another book coming out, you'll be on my show whenever it comes out. We're putting this information out there. And people are going, Hmm, maybe I should try that. Maybe I need to do that. In that case, we are making a difference. Right? I quit making, I quit writing books, because I realized, You know, I can do more because people like watching stuff, and they like listening to stuff. So I do a lot of podcasts. I do five a week. When I'm finished here, I'm doing a podcast. It's what I do. I sit on this mic all day and and I make movies, you know, in three years, I've made three movies. Can James Cameron say that? No, he can't. (laughs) But you know, it's what we do. You know, we just have to keep doing it and hope that it makes a difference.
0: You know, for really reflecting on the end of one, you know, I have people that will say to me, well, you're not doing research anymore. And, you know, you're in a, a different environment. And I say all the time, it's impactful when you see that certain strategies are really very effective, whether it's eating less often, whether it's eliminating specific foods, you know, non-sugar, non-grains, which is huge whether it's lowering your carbohydrate intake or eliminating alcohol or eliminating processed sugars. I mean, it has a huge impact and it just really speaks to how inflammatory a lot of these, whether it's meal frequency or particular foods that we're consuming on a daily basis and how that impacts our health in very negative ways. And I think creating greater awareness is really important. And what's interesting was I stumbled upon a, because it's a blog. My husband's an engineer. He's always kind of looking a little deeper at things. And there are still people that are out there that as one example, they believe that waking is just a function of caloric intake and has nothing to do with hormones. And I yeah. think it's so short-sighted that so many people are not open to the opportunity to learn and look at things a little bit differently. You know, the Ben Bickman's of the world and Jason Fung and, you know, people that are doing incredible research in these areas and I reference frequently because I think it's so incredibly important because oftentimes people are told they're crazy when they have an out of the box kind of perspective methodology. But then over time, if they're having more and more people that are seeing results, you know, using different strategies and finding that the shared collective, you know, when all these great minds come together and and certainly have a lot of them in your podcast and I do as well, you start to wonder that there's more to it than we realize that whether it's the power of connection by voice, you know, with a podcast or with a documentary where you can see things visually or reading a book or, you know, some other modality, you know, meeting at conferences and speaking events and things like that. It has a tremendous impact on the way that we choose to live our lives and our lens with which we see the world.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, we just have to keep doing it, I guess. I mean, I don't know what else to do. You know, it's that old, it goes back to that old joke of, you know, this farmer in Texas, this rancher, he's driving along, checking his fence line, and he sees a, a turtle on top of one of the fence posts. And he says, uh, turtle, how did you get here? And the turtle goes, I have no idea. And he says, turtle, how do you expect to get down? And the turtle goes, I have no idea. <laughs> and sometimes I feel like that, you know, I just started doing all this because I wrote a book and I wanted people to buy the book. So I, I went online and started talking about the book. And next thing you know, people are going, What else you got? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. I expected to do the podcast for like six months. I didn't even know what a podcast was. The week before I started my podcast, we're coming up on 2000 shows now. Mm-hmm. You know? And someone said, My nephew said, do a podcast. I was like, What's that? He was just talking to a mic into a computer. And I was like, and who's going to hear it? You know, I was confused about the whole thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But here we are. You know, I feel like the farmer's going, Hey, Vinny, how did you get in that post? I, like, I don't know. How are you going to get down? Just, I don't know. I, 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 I think, just don't know.
0: Yeah, I think life can be very serendipitous. You know, when we reflect back on how did I get to where I am, it suddenly all makes sense. You know, all the little steps that we've taken have prepared us for where we are today. So, yeah share with the listeners, when is your documentary released? How can they check it out? Because I think it's a really impactful, helpful one. And how can they connect with your other documentaries fat and fat Two?
1: By the time this podcast comes out, you can get beyond impossible, probably on iTunes and Amazon, a few other places, you can pre order it, you you can do the pre sale So I always recommend that people do that. Because number one, you won't forget for eight months and go oh yeah wait I think I heard about that on Cynthia's podcast Mm -hmm. so as soon as you while you're listening to this podcast go out and buy it up front so when it comes out it will show up in your queue and you can watch it it also helps us with IMDB and everything else it comes out in early January it will be released so if you buy it in December you'll wait a few weeks and it'll be out so that's Fat a Documentary, the original, that's the whole name of it, folks. It's called Fat a Documentary. That thing um, became this juggernaut for me. As a matter of fact, that movie Free Solo was at the top of iTunes for like a eight months or something like that. That our movie came along and toppled that movie. We stayed at the top of iTunes and Amazon for a few weeks. And then the Aretha Franklin movie came out and toppled us. But only for a few days. And then we went back on top again and stayed there. We have screenshots of all this because I said oh. in my life, this will never happen again. So that movie the first movie did amazingly well one of um, not one of it was the number one documentary of all time that gravitas venture ever put out. I've seen it on most major airlines I've been on at some point or another someone you know people from around the world malaysian airlines i wasn't on that airline and someone hey look your movie's on malaysian airlines and it's on 65 vod so it's in every country and every part of the world i get cards and letters actually i call them cards and letters they're emails from every corner of the earth you know people just love that movie i just noticed and i have the hat on right now so if anyone's watching this video I still have a bunch of these hats, so I'll wear them. And then during the pandemic, I thought I would tell the rest of the story because I had a lot of great interview left. And we talked about Gary Taubes and Nina Teichos and Brett Shear and all that during this podcast. Dr. Eric Westman. I could go on and on and on. It's like, it's a who's who of how to lose weight and get healthy. I put out Fat a Documentary, too. It's the continuation of Fat One. And even though it didn't make, the numbers that fat one made. It's still doing very well. It did very well throughout the pandemic. It still does very well. And critically, most people are saying fat two is better than fat one, including my mother. So um going to my mom fat two is better than fat one. fat one is still the number one movie gravitas has ever put out across the world. I'm shocked that me a non filmmaker was able to make that movie. And now we're coming out with beyond impossible and uh, let's hope beyond impossible does more than fat one did because the world really needs to see this film. And I'm really hoping everyone goes out and watches this.
0: Well, I'm proud to call you a friend and someone that is a disruptor. You're forcing people to kind of think outside their comfort zone, but in a way that it's not confrontational, it's informational. You obviously have great connections to a lot of very important people that are able to articulate scientific ideas, scientific research in a way that makes it very accessible and a particular nod to Nina Takeholz who really does a fantastic job with this. So how can my listeners connect with you? Obviously you've identified how to find the documentaries. You've got a prolific podcast. As you mentioned, you record five days a week, which is just incredible But how can people connect with you on social media? It seems like you're pretty active on Twitter. I do see you on Instagram, but Twitter, you you seem to be much more interactive.
1: Yeah, I go on Twitter twice a day and answer every question on Twitter, including the guy who said, why is his vitamins got synthetic stuff in it? There's a good reason for that. Uh, Let me answer him here again because he was just being an (laughs) asshole. So let me help this asshole out. It's because when you're making a vitamin, It's in some cases, we went after the best ingredients in the world. And sometimes if you put a food sourced ingredient, just like real food, that it will lose its potency and actually ruin the vitamin, ruin the whole vitamin. So you can't just put synthetics whenever you're doing the 13 essential vitamins. You have to use synthetics. And and that's the choice I made. I don't think anyone wants a vitamin. They have to refrigerate. That's why no one does it. So that's why we do that. I didn't mean to get into that. But I saw that question. It's like, Hey, man, I don't shy away from anything. You want to ask the question. I'm gonna give you the answer. What else did you you asked me something else in there. And I uh, uh, was
0: asking how to connect with you. And I was saying it, it seems like you're more active on Twitter.
1: Yeah, I'm on Twitter twice a day, you know, and I answer every single question unless someone is being really jerky. And I didn't mean to call that guy an a hole. It's probably a super nice guy. But you know, that's where I am. I have a Facebook group. It's got like 30,000 people in it. Wow. And it's the NSNG Vinny Tartarich's No Sugars, No Grains group on Facebook. And they're in there arguing about what I said or didn't say or how I said it. And so there's that. There's com. That's where you can find all of the podcasts and where the movies are and everything else. But when my movies are released, they go through Gravitas Ventures. Uh, they're a big deal. I'm shocked that they still pick up the phone. I've only ever dealt with the president of gravitas uh, Brendan Gallagher. And I don't know how that works. I don't think everyone gets to do that. But the first time I contacted him, I found the president of gravitas and I wrote to him and he was like, how did you even get my email? I was like, "I, I, I, I looked it up and I got it. And he goes, yeah, send me the movie. And he watched it himself. And I've only ever dealt with the president of the company. And sometimes we've made handshake deals and then, his download your know, his suits will go. Well, we don't have this in writing. It's like, you have to go ask Brendan, we hand shook on this on the phone. And then he'll say, Oh, yeah, that's the deal. And we've done three deals like that. Before the lawyers get involved, he and I just get on the phone and chat. I'm just shocked that they're still loving my movies and uh, they like what I'm doing. And I'm gonna just keep doing them, I guess. I'm, maybe I'm done. This might be it. The, uh, <laughs> oh,
0: I no, I think you've got a whole lot more in you. I,
1: I don't know. Out. They're taking my life away from me.
0: (laughs) Well, it's always a pleasure to connect with you. I'm I'm glad that it it worked out serendipitously that we could record, you know, a couple days before Thanksgiving. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And whenever you're ready to come out with that book, what's the book? Are you telling people what the book is called yet?
0: Yes. It's called Intermittent Fasting Transformation. I have 45. So it's all about fasting and women. And it's published on March 15th, 2022. And so yeah, I'm super excited. It's it's really, I feel like it's a little bit of blood sweat and tears, but it's all
1: good. It is but just keep going anywhere I can support you let me know we're going to do a podcast right when it comes out. And Cynthia, do me a favor. Yep. Please you send me the thing because going through assistance and it drives me nuts because I think I'm talking to you and I'm talking to someone else and she's going I'll tell Cynthia Mm -hmm. and now I'm confused. Yeah, yeah, I'll be happy I, too. People like Corolla and Dr. Drew, we just call each other. Yeah. Hey, Drew, I need to do a show. Great. Let's just do it. You know, it's so much easier for
0: me. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I totally agree. And I think it's interesting, you know, whether people realize this or not, that the onslaught of communication, like I kind of run through my emails when I open them up in the morning, you know, besides opening up and having to take a deep breath. And I just try to hit the things that need to be hit first and then delete yeah. what doesn't have to be deleted. And then I deal with the rest. It's kind of, slogging through the snow. It's just what you have to do.
1: Yeah, well, keep doing what you're doing. And you have a big fan here. And uh, thank you for having me on.
0: Absolutely.
1: I always enjoy supporting you.
0: Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us
1: online, visit the link in the show notes.